The Bible is a book of promises. The Bible tells us the intentions, the plans of God for mankind. You see, in the very beginning in the garden, God put Adam and Eve in this place of absolute beauty, of harmony with nature. And he said, be fruitful and multiply. God intends good. His intentions are good. In the Bible, all the good things that God wants to do for mankind are highlighted and revealed. In Psalm 81, verses 13 through 16, God says this, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would still endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. God wants to bless his people. He intends to give us the highest quality of life. But sin, rebellion, and non-compliance keeps us from all this goodness, keeps the world from all the goodness of God. In Jeremiah 5.25, it says, your iniquities have turned these things away. What things? Victory and joy and peace and love. And your sins have withheld good things from you. God's intentions for mankind are good. It's for peace and love and joy, fellowship, restoration, harmony, healing, provision, help, victory, and so much more. In this book, you will find a promise that corresponds to any trial, any deficit, any problem that you could possibly face on earth. There is a corresponding promise, a word of comfort, a word of hope. These promises are good promises. These promises are great promises, the best promises ever, because they're not temporal. They're eternal. You know, we just had Christmas, right? And there's like that potential. You see that wrap present? And you're like, this is going to be so good. And then you open it up, and it's a gift certificate to McDonald's. <laughs> but the wrapping looks so nice. You know what I mean? But these are, this promise, when you open it up, God's promises, it's good. It's like, oh my goodness, this is what I would have gotten for myself if I had had the choice. I've told you this before, but Brian and I have this thing. He says, what did I get you for Christmas? And I said, well, you were especially generous this year. And then I show him what he got me for Christmas. He got me all the things I wanted. And he, I said, what did I get you? And he says, oh, you should see, Cheryl, you shouldn't go into debt like that. And I'm like, no, I shouldn't. But that's how we do it. It just works out better for us. We used to get each other presents that we did not like and we returned. So now these are keepers. 
But God's promises are great promises. And they're manifold promises. I mean, they lead to even more promises and more promises. Yeah. How can we, who are not Israelites, have you ever had somebody where you're like, I got this promise in Isaiah, and they're like, that was for the Jews. <laughs> that was promised to the people who were under Hezekiah. Who do you think you are? You're living in, you know, this day and age. No. No, that promise. How do I, as a non-Israelite, as a not perfect, have you ever noticed how conditional the promises are? It's just reading, you know, God's promise to Solomon. If you will walk in all my ways, if you will keep my statutes, if you, if, they're all conditional. And we see that even Solomon didn't keep the promises of God, who was so wise, who was so endowed, so blessed, had two encounters with God, where God spoke to him and said, ask me whatever you want. God came to him again and said, I heard your prayer. Solomon, who built the temple in Jerusalem for God, if Solomon, with all of that wisdom, with all the gifts, with those encounters from God, could not retain the right to the promises of God, how can we expect non-Israelites, totally imperfect, I am not just talking about myself, how can we become beneficiaries of the promises and blessings of God when we cannot earn them? When they are so far above us, it is through Jesus. It is through Jesus. You see, all the promises of God hinge on Jesus. Jesus is at the center of all of God's promises. He's the qualifier. He's the way in to all the promises. He fulfilled all the conditions necessary to receive the promises of God. In other words, Jesus earned every single promise of God. From coming and humbling himself, through the incarnation, being willing to become a man, through living the life of a human being, not in extravagance, but through poverty, by only doing those things that please the Father, by speaking words of truth in love, by living absolutely righteously, by having only righteous thoughts, righteous words, and righteous deeds, and then by dying on a cross as absolutely 100% innocent, as Pilate declared over three times, he is innocent. He is innocent. He is innocent. He merited every single promise of God. He earned them. He walked in them. He fought for them, and he won them. And all the promises of God belong to Jesus. They all belong to Jesus. Not only is he the fulfillment of all of God's word, he is all the promises of God are in Christ. They're all in the Messiah. They're all contained. 
And the only way to the promises of God are through Jesus. The only way you want to promise in Isaiah, go through Jesus. You want to promise in Genesis? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Go to Jesus. And he will give you the promises of God. At Christmas time, I really wanted some ribbon from a certain place in Santa Ana, which you must have a card for. But once you get in, it is ribbon heaven. There is, and some of you know what I'm talking about, but I don't want to give any false advertisements here. I already put down McDonald's, I'm feeling guilt, so. Even in and out would have been a little bit better. But I wanted, I wanted to go there. But there's a problem. I do not belong. I do not have a cart. I had one friend who volunteered to take me, but then she backed out. I won't say why. Other priorities, like a Christmas coffee, but fine. And so she said, but I found somebody to go with you. Jill will take you. And so Jill took me to Ribbon Heaven. Jill had a card. And she walked me in, and there were some of the most gorgeous ribbons. We oohed, we awed. And I chose ones. They already had discount price, but no, I had to choose the ones that were an extra 40% off. I found them. I put them in the cart. I wanted possession of them so desperately. I knew they would enhance all my gifts to others. And I wanted those ribbons, beautiful ribbons. Some I even haven't had the chance to use yet. They're so beautiful. But as we're walking through, Jill says, oh no, I lost the card. So we have to retrace our steps all through ribbon heaven and find the card. I'm going through and I see this piece of paper and it's all kind of like very wrinkled, a little torn. And there it is on the ground and I just pick it up. But you know what? It's not Jill's name on the card. It's somebody else's name who I don't know, but I thought, well, you know, it is a card. <laughs> Jill's doing other aisles. We're going to find her card. And so she's like, Cheryl, I looked. I could not find the card. I said, well, Jill, I found this one. But I don't even know who this person is. She goes, that's my best friend. That's her card. That's, a, that's my card. I'm like, we're not even here on our own authority or in your name? We're, we're here by the righteous act of another? You see, it was Jill's friend who paid the price. It was Jill's friend who earned that card. It was Jill's friend who gave us an entrance and a right to the blessings of those ribbons and the ability to purchase and then possess those ribbons. Do you get what I'm saying? We're not here by our merit. We don't get these promises because we have a, a card in our name. We are here because Jesus has merited. He's paid the dues. He's given us entrance and the right 
to claim, put the promises in our cart and take them home and make them ours. All the blessings of God by way of Jesus Christ. It is by his name, his payment, his righteousness that we have access, privilege, claim, and possession of all the promises of God. All these have become available to me. Whatever color, whatever width, whatever length that I need is mine because of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God are in him and they are yes and in him so be it or guaranteed to the glory of God. Through Jesus, we not only see God's good intentions for mankind, but we receive and realize and possess possess even now what is ours eternally. You see, without Jesus, we cannot have any of the promises of God. All the premises of God hinge on Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, according to Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, we are without a Messiah. We are aliens separated from all of God's covenants, all his agreements all his promises, no hope and without God. There's no way to even have God in our lives without Jesus. But verse 13, here's hope. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been made near, have been brought in by the blood of Christ. Now, all the promises that Abraham received from God all hinged on a promised son. Without that promised son, none of the blessings, none of the promises that God had given Abraham could ever come to pass. In Genesis 12, you remember God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And based on those promises, Abraham left Haran, went to Canaan to a land that God showed him. And while in the land of Canaan, God spoke to him again, lift up your eyes now. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants. Now, Abraham doesn't have any children forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Genesis 13. God repeats these promises to Abraham again after he's been in the land for a while. In chapter 15, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But now in chapter 15, Abraham says, um, Lord, I see a, a slight contradiction. <laughs> There's a little problem here. I know you've made all these promises to me, but I don't have an heir. I don't have a son. All I've got is a servant who was born in my house. He's not a blood relative. He's not really my descendant. I'm childless. And you, I, how is this going to happen, Lord? And at that point, God promises Abraham an heir that would come from his loins. 
and all the promise of God, everything that God said he would do could only happen if this promised son was born, lived, and procreated. That was necessary. Without the son of promise, none of the promises to Abraham could be realized. None. God emphasized this promise. This one, speaking of Ishmael, shall not be your heir in chapter 17, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then God called Abraham outside to stare up at the stars in the desert sky and promised him as many descendants as stars. It's not Abraham's servant. It's not Ishmael. It's still this child that Abraham is waiting for that has not come. God says to Abraham, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly, and you shall be the father of many nations. I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants. No promised child. Also, I give you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Genesis 17, one through eight. God tells Abraham that the son of promise, the one on whom all the promises will be brought through, the hinge, the way in, will be birthed by barren Sarah, who is now approaching 90. Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. I love this. Abraham thinks he might have heard wrong. He laughs. He falls on his face. That's how ridiculous it is. (laughs) Boom. The thought of Sarah giving birth at 90 is absolutely preposterous. He offers God a solution. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God once more clarifies that all the promises that he has given to Abraham will hinge on the special child, the son he has been waiting for, the one that will be conceived and miraculously born through barren old Sarah. I hate to call her that, but it's true. No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Genesis 17, 19. Do you realize that? According to God's word, it has to be this son who isn't even living on planet earth yet. But there's no possibility that these promises can be fulfilled or come to pass without this miraculous child. But even as God said, Sarah conceives at around 90. Sarah holds that child in her womb for nine months. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we like, oh, conception. 
No, 90 years old and the baby stays. And his birth, birth at 90, it was hard enough at 21, according to God's appointed time. And this brings us to Genesis 22. Here is the young man upon whom every promise hinges. He is not married. He does not have a wife. He has not produced a child. And all the promises of God will not be realized, will not come to pass unless Isaac marries and has children. There's no offspring yet. And God says to Abraham, take now your son, your only son. Why he, was he the only son? He was the only son by whom the promises could be realized. The only son whom you love. First mention of love in the Bible between a father toward the son. And go to the land of Moriah, which is the hills of Jerusalem, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. God is asking for the son of promise, the one on whom all the promises hinge and without whom the promises to Abraham cannot be fulfilled. He is saying to Abraham, offer your son as a sacrifice. He's not telling Abraham to kill his son. He's not directing or preparing Abraham for Isaac's death. He's not saying, I'm going to take him. He's going to die. No, God is saying something very specific. Offer him as a sacrifice. Offer him as a burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering is unlike any of the other offerings. A burnt offering is an offering that is completely consumed. The other offerings, whether they be a grain offering, a peace offering, a fel- uh, peace offering is the fellowship offering, but the uh, other offerings, even the sin offering that we find in Leviticus and Exodus, all of these, the priest and the person giving the offering would have a portion in. But the burnt offering... The, the offerer, the priest, had no portion in. This was an offering that was to be entirely consumed. And the idea of this offering was even the very nature of the offering was to become transcendent. So what was material became smoke that could ascend to heaven. Why it was material It was earthbound. But once it became smoke, you know, because that which is material, maybe you remember in science, actually um, still has substance. But this substance was transformed to something that could ascend to heaven, to God. It was absolute consecration. The substance of the animal would be totally changed from material to smoke. I know part of that offering could the one who offers it share in or have part of. So God is saying, I want you to fully, 100% consecrate, give this to me. 
Furthermore, God directs Abraham to offer this specific son. I was saying in, in group today that I, I think Abraham didn't tell Sarah because Sarah would say, take Ishmael. <laughs> you know, you have two sons, you know. This is the son of promise. The only son, the only one qualified to be the heir. The son he loves. The son that God has named Isaac. Uh, the name chosen by God that means laughter, joy. And what God is calling Abraham to do seems anything but joy or laughter. But his name itself contained the promise, didn't it? This is the son that will give you joy. This is the son that will give you laughter. But there can be no mistake over this requirement. God specifies a place, a mountain among mountains, that Abraham will be shown Abraham obeys, even though it doesn't make sense. Even though the sacrifice of Isaac would mean that the promises of God could not be fulfilled, that they were done with. Abraham saddles his donkey, carries two young men and Isaac, takes wood, follows the directions of God, and he ends up at Jerusalem among the mountains. It's a three-day journey to the place God is showing him. Abraham has not been to Jerusalem before, though he's met Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem. And it's a mountain, Mount Moriah. During that time, those three days, Abraham is silent and is considered his son as dead. In his heart, he has already given his beloved son to God as a sacrifice. At the bottom of the mountain, Abraham lays the wood on Isaac's back. And he tells the men, my son and I will go up to worship the Lord and come back. And he begins the ascension on the hill of Moriah that God has shown him. On the way up, Isaac's like, okay, God, I mean, dad, we've got wood, got a torch with fire. We're only missing like one thing. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The sacrifice will be what God provides. It is what God will give. But God has already given Isaac to Abraham. When they come to the specified place, Abraham builds the altar. He puts the wood in order. And then he binds Isaac, who is probably between 30 and 33 years old. But Isaac does not resist his old man, his old father, who's probably by this time 130 or so. Isaac does not resist. Like, hey, dad, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> little dementia here, dad. You know, follow my finger. You know, can you see me? How many of me are there? He, he cooperates with his father. There is no resistance. When Abraham lifts the knife, the angel or messenger of the Lord stops him. Note that the angel of the Lord calls Abraham by name. 
Abraham. There can be no mistake, it's you. And he repeats it. Anytime the Bible repeats a name or a theme, it's because the surety of that thing. So the name is repeated. This is what God does when he wants someone's full attention. Martha, Martha. Because she's like, Mary, Mary. Did you see what Mary's doing? She's so distracted. Martha, Martha. Abraham, Abraham. Do not lay your hand on the lad. And the word lad is the Hebrew word, not er, or young man. Or do anything to him. For now I know, or now I see that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Who is this angel of the Lord who speaks of God in the second person, but then speaks of the giving of the sacrifice in the first person? The Lord then arrests Abraham's, atten uh, arrests Abraham's attention, stops him, and he shows him a lamb that is stuck in the thicket. And Abraham calls the place, the Lord will provide, or Yahweh Yireh. Here at this place, God's provision, God's way into all of his promises will be seen. The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Isn't it interesting that the word seen is used here? And in John 8, 56, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Years ago, when we were just building our church in Vista, it just only been framed out. I remember my Aunt Isi coming in. She wanted to see it. Um, it was Thanksgiving. And I drove her over to the church and Brian was sitting with the board members on the floor because there was nothing but concrete and, and wood and, and piles of wood and then a, a little bit of framing. And I remember she looked at me and her eyes were almost like um, glassy brilliant. It was just incredible. And she looked at me and she said, I see it. And she was looking all around. She said, I see it. I see it. And I'm like, what do you see? What do you see? I'm getting on her level because she's like this tall. I'm like, what do we, what do we see? What, what do we, it's a good thing I've got this country man, Mike, now that I realize. What do we see? What do we see? She saw it all. I didn't even know where the classrooms, fellowship hall, or the main sanctuary was. I was like, what are we seeing? But she saw it. Abraham on that mountain. When God stops him, when God shows him the ram in the thicket caught, he says, I see it. I see it. It. In other words, I understand this chapter, which has confused so many others. It's the day of Abraham's revelation. 
the day when he sees Jesus and he rejoices and says, I see it. Here's the way into all the promises. God will provide himself as the way into all the promises. Then the angel of the Lord who speaks on God's behalf swears to Abraham by an oath, by the power of his person and the power of his word that all the blessings will be passed on through Isaac and only Isaac. Now the blessings are guaranteed. Now the blessings are impregnable, cannot be broken. They're absolute surety from the highest power, highest authority. They are certain because you have not withheld your son, your only son, in blessing, I will bless you. In multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What did Abraham do to earn this? He obeyed. He obeyed. Faith and obedience brought Abraham into all the promises of God that hinged on this son. What a promise. God is saying, every time I bless, if I'm going to bless anybody on this earth, you get part of it. Yeah, right? It's like getting going to a birthday party and they give you just as great a presence as the birthday kid gets. When I was a little girl and I would go to the birthday party, I was uh, raised in Newport Beach. I went to Newport Heights Elementary with all the rich kids. I think I was the poorest kid there. We lived on subsidies of peanut butter that Annie would provide for us from our, her camp. And my dad spread that peanut butter so thin on my sandwiches you couldn't even see it. And it's hard to spread it that thin. I always knew when mom did my lunch because there was an ample amount of peanut butter. It's like, oh, you can see it. Mom must have made it this morning. And I would go to these birthday parties and they would get a bubble. My, my three favorite presents as a child. I asked for them every year because I had a brother that would break them every year. So I'd ask for them every year after year after year. A rubber ball, a bubble gum machine, that way you save money and get enjoyment at the same time <laughs> and a cash register. I loved, I don't know. Those are my three favorites. Not Barbies. Those are all hand-me-downs from the girls who got too old in the church. I got some of Terry Fisher's old Barbie dolls. I, um, that's what I got from other people. I never had a new Barbie doll in my life, but the ones I got were so nice and more and still in the box. But this is what I wanted every year. And I would see these Newport Beach kids, not to put them down, they're my friends still. They would like, another bubblegum machine? I'd be like, if you don't want it, I'll take it. You know? A rubber ball? If you don't want it. A cash register? And I'd be like, oh, if only... If only, you know, I get one. You get, you know, my mom would say, Cheryl, it's either the rubber ball, the bubble gum machine, 
or the cash register. I'd be like, don't we have any rich relatives? I didn't even have a grandma and grandpa. You know, it's just mom and dad, and they lived on peanut butter subsidies. You know, what, what hope did I have? And these kids would get all of it, but this is like going to a birthday party, and everyone gets cash registers. You know, God is saying, every time I give a cash register, you get a cash register. Every time I give someone a bubble gum machine, you get a bubble gum machine. Every time someone gets a red rubber ball, you get a red rubber ball. You're like, I don't want those. You Newport women. (laughs) But God is saying to Abraham, every time I bless, I will bless you. Every time I multiply somebody, I'll multiply you. You'll share in it. You're part of all my blessings. You're never removed from my blessings from now on. And your descendants will be victorious over their enemies. All the promises of God hinged on this only son. This son of promise, this son from a barren woman, this son whom we love, the son whom we waited for, the son of covenant, the son of joy, the son who must be offered up completely to God as a burnt offering. And God, as you know, was using Abraham to create a prophetic picture for us that we might know that all of God's promises, every good word, every blessing of God, Hinges not on our merit, not on our deeds, but on God's only Son, on God's beloved Son, on God's promised Son, born to barren Israel, born of a virgin by a miracle, the Son that was waited for, the Son born in the promised land, the Son of covenant the son of joy. Without God's son, there could be no promise forthcoming, no promise realized, no promise claimed. Yet, because of God, because of Jesus, all of the promises of God come to us. All of them, all of them are claimable. All of them can be owned, possessed. Jesus was offered as a burnt offering, a full consecration of his life to God. His entire life, we didn't have any part of it. We We couldn't do it because we're unrighteous. It had to be fully Jesus, completely Jesus, and only Jesus. Romans 8, 31, 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him? Freely give us all things. It was this great moment in Abraham's life that showcased his faith, secured all the promises of God, and brought the possibility of all God's blessings to Abraham. 
2,000 years later, when the disciples were disturbed as Jesus talked about his crucifixion, and Peter even went so far as to rebuke the Lord, Matthew 16, 22, not realizing that Jesus' death on the specified mountain outside the walls of Jerusalem on that wooden cross was the gateway to salvation by faith. It was the gateway to all the promises of God and to the guarantee of all of God's good intentions for man. The rest of Genesis 22 and 23 show us that God's intention was not Isaac's death because God was already at work providing the right bride for Isaac. In fact, in Jeremiah 7, 31, 19, 5, and 32, 35, God reiterates that he has never required and would never want human sacrifice. He said, such a thing has never entered into my mind that a man or woman would give their son as a sacrifice to him. This was something that God reserved for himself and for his only son. God's intention was to use Abraham to teach us, to show us what he would do and the source of all the promises coming through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Genesis 23 is the negotiations for Sarah's burial. Of the land promised to Abraham, he owned only a cave where he buried Sarah. So the down payment, the realization of all the promises of God is not only a cross, but an empty cave. An empty place that was given to Jesus at the base of Calvary. It's a burial plot but you will not find the body of Jesus there because all the promises of God are now guaranteed. And there is one now who sits resurrected and alive, having conquered death at the right hand of the Father, asking, interceding, guaranteeing, and sending all the promises of God to us. And now we see only the first installments, the first possession of the land, of all the great promises that are ours guaranteed. Today, today you can lay claim to all the promises of God, not based on your good works, hallelujah, not because you know, it's how many resolutions did you make that you've already broken? No offense. Not based on some noble deed that you've done. I alone here among all the congregants have climbed Mount Everest. I haven't. Neither have you. Not based on perfect behavior. Not based on heritage. Your claim to all the promises of God is not your goodness. Not your nobility. Not your lineage. Not your education. But it is your relationship to Jesus, the Messiah who met all the necessary requirements. It's his card. It's got his name on it. He is the 
only son of promise. He is the one on whom all the promises of God hinge. Without Jesus, there is no promise, no blessing, no surety. But because of Jesus, there is promise, there is blessing, there is surety. Today, today, now, new decade, new time. Tons of promises. Doesn't that make you just want to go into your Bible and start collecting promises? All the promises that you possibly can get. Don't you just want to amass promises? I will tell you something about myself that I really don't want to tell, but I'm going to tell because the Spirit of God is on me and He's the Spirit of truth and He makes me speak truth. I am a pinecone collector. I walk my dog with a grocery bag that I collect pine cones on. You know why? Because my grandson years ago showed me that pine cones burn so beautifully in a fireplace. They like sizzle and then they begin to pop and spark. He, used, he taught me to collect pine cones. And we would collect pine cones and he moved away and I still had a bag, a paper bag full of pine cones. And I was kind of upset, so I just stuck them into my fireplace all at one time. I almost blew up the house. <laughs> but there is something in me that loves to collect pine cones. And whenever I see a pine cone, I just want to collect it. I want as many pine cones. I had two huge boxes of pine cones. And my daughter-in-law said, you know, Mom, you have enough. And I said, that's what you think. <laughs> I went through those in two days. And two days ago, I walked Barnabas and I collected so many pine cones, I had to take them back home and drop them off at my house and get another bag. And this is just in the Mesa Verde area. I want as many pine cones as I can possibly get because they make my fire so beautiful and it pops and it's so nice. And Brian says buying wood is a waste because you just burn it up. So I collect pine cones. I've collected them even off of MacArthur out there. Big ones, beautiful ones. Sometimes if you get the ones that are all compact, they even pop better because they still have the sap in them. Don't try this. I'm, gonna, I'm collecting as many pine cones as I can. All the time I see a pine cone, I'm like, excuse me a second. There's something in me. Or like, oh, look at all the pine cones. And I'm thinking, okay, if I drive back and start collecting them, as long as I'm wearing a hat and sunglasses, nobody will know who I am. Especially if I come back without Barnabas, the dog. But I get people going, I saw you with a bag walking your dog. Did you? Huh. Yeah, the promises of God are so much better than pine cones. But they'll make your life pop. And they'll bring beauty and warmth and comfort, joy. Don't you want to collect as many promises as you can? Don't you? I love to take my grandkids on a pine cone collecting tour with grandma. I give them all a bag and say, who can collect the most pine cones for grandma's fireplace? And we put them in. 
stockpile the promises of God. Have them ready when your children and your grandchildren come over. Collect the promises for your neighbors and for others. So many that you can give them away. I have way too many pine cones. Take some. I haven't done it yet because I don't feel that way. <clears throat> but don't you want to collect the promises of God? Don't you want to just stockpile them so when people come over, you're like, oh, wait, I think I can find a promise for you. Or when they're talking about something that they're going through, you can go to your heart and start going through it and say, yes, and the Holy Spirit will say, that's the promise. And you'll pull it out and say, oh, I've got something for you. Here's a promise of God. Because all the promises of God are yes. They're ours. And in him, they are so they will happen. Amen. To the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians 1.20. Today, because of Jesus. All the promises of God are available. All, as many as you want. Get the market bags ready. Get it ready. Stockpile your house full of the promises of God. Because of Jesus, they are all ours. Pray the promises of God over your children. Pray them over your neighbors. Pray them over your friends. Pray them, use them, live in them. Wrap your presence with them. They are yours. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how do we say thank you enough? How do we say thank you for making all these great and grand promises? Emmanuel, God is now with us. God is now for us. No weapon formed against us will prosper the joy of the Lord has become our strength. You will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart the good, great things that God has for those who love him. Oh, Lord, such great, true, assured promises. Because of Jesus, let us not neglect. Let us not ignore. Let us not relegate these only to others. But God, make us those who collect the promises of God, who live by the promises of God, who enjoy the promises of God, who realize and possess the promises of God, even as Abraham received all of the promises of God through Isaac, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have received all of the promises of God through you. The great, the great, good, only begotten Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, conqueror of death, restorer of life, we give you glory for your goodness, for your love, and for all the good promises and intentions that you have 
assured and guaranteed to us through your life and death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.